Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia to just being a part of doing more than 30 years of morning television and radio. It's just part of the gig, right? So I dug a little deeper and it turned out there was way more to learn. In this series, we try to help people fix their sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken and maybe we can stumble upon some answers together. Quick note before we get into this week's show, last week's superstar guest, Julie Flygar, was generous enough to give us copies of her terrific book to give away. It's called Wide Awake and Dreaming, My Journal of Narcolepsy. All you gotta do to get your chance to win is uh, head to our website, thesnoozebutton.com. Click on the contests link and do it before May the 31st, 2020 for your chance to win. Now, this week's episode sounds less like me doing research or, you know, as they say, all research is me search by talking to a neuroscientist and more like a couple of friends just geeking out over sleep science. I want to introduce you to my new friend, Dr. Seema Kosla. Sure, she's the medical director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep. She's board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care medicine, sleep medicine. And yes, she is the Consumer and Clinical Technology Committee chair with the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. But she's also the host of Talking Sleep, a brand new podcast from that same American Academy of Sleep Medicine. That show is a little bit like this one, except it's mostly uh, sleep doctors like Seema talking to other sleep doctors. And as soon as I heard the show, I knew that we needed to have Seema on the Snooze Button podcast. So here she is. Seema, I start every episode of the show exactly the same way. Everybody gets the very same first question, uh, and it is this. I'm going to put you on the spot. How did you sleep last night? Oh, that's a great question. I actually slept really, really well. And part of that is because I didn't sleep well the night before. We have dogs and they decided to get up like three times. And so last night I told my family, I'm going to bed, leave me alone. <laughs> they did. <laughs> and I slept great. I think I woke up at like nine o'clock this morning. It was wonderful. Okay. So the dogs, let's see, this is, this is what's going to happen on this show about a hundred times already. I can tell uh, just from the way this conversation has begun. Dogs, do they sleep in the bed or no? So this is really funny. So mine do not, but I have two labs and that would be really sort of ungainly to have these giant dogs in bed with me. <laughs> <laughs> they try. <laughs> in fact, I usually have one in my office under my desk and one beside my desk. And um, so just... I'm going to take a little detour. So a few weeks ago, we started doing uh, telemedicine full time and it was right before my kids um, went back to school. They'd been out for, for spring break. And so I'm seeing my like last patient of the morning, who, of course, is a brand new patient. And right as I'm wrapping up with him, you know, my kids had kind of decided this would be a really, really good time to bathe off the dogs. And so I'm trying to sort of end my visit with this patient. All of a sudden, I have two kids and two giant labs stampeding through the house, like soaking wet. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, if it had been a patient that I already knew, they probably would have thought it was really funny for me sure. to have like this wet dog in my lap. But um, I'm not sure. You know, I was very glad that I actually managed to end the visit before I had this giant dog. So, so <laughs> in my lap. So, yeah, you know, it's funny for years and years and years, we used to tell people, nope, get your dog out of the bedroom. You know, this is really bad. And then a few years ago, Mayo released a study saying that people actually sleep better with their dog in the bedroom. So not bed, 
but in the room because it's, I suppose it's sort of reassuring and it's kind of nice. And so I thought that was really interesting that this thing that we've talked about forever is like sort of a, a truism wasn't. Well, and there's the thing that uh, for some reason the media has started focus on focusing on it again this week, even though it's, I think, a two-year-old study that uh, if it's in the bed, it turns out that women sleep better with dogs than with um, a, a partner, which I had no idea. And I, 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 you know, I mean, my wife and I have been in the middle of a, and, and I'm sorry to use this term because uh, everybody that's been on the show agrees it's a terrible term. We need to get rid of it. We need to come up with something better. My wife and I have been doing a sleep divorce for six months now. And uh, I mean, partly because of my three o'clock alarm, but partly also because when I went to my sleep lab, I found out that I had a periodic limb movement index of 82. <laughs> Jeez. Imagine sleeping next to that. So, um, yeah, we started doing that. It's been it's done wonders for her sleep, but it also means that the dog comes and sleep with me. So, you know, because oh, she didn't get the dog. No, no, somebody's got to get the short end of the stick, and it's me because the dog ends up usually at about one in the morning uh, having a dream. So I'm I'm lying beside this miniature labradoodle who's going, <laughs> you know, it's just it's it's, it's a so, fun night of slumber. So the dog's doing kind of what you we're doing to your wife. Do yeah, you? it's 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 turnabout is fair play. I think is the message. I'm, I'm spelling there. karma here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so why sleep? Because you have this uh, resume behind you that uh, it it just kicks ass and takes names. So why sleep? So this is kind of funny. So when I, um, you know, did, I did residency and then I did fellowship and fellowship is pulmonary critical care and sleep. And, you know, when you're, when you're in your twenties, it's all excitement, right? You're doing all these procedures and it's super fun. And then when I got my first grown up job, I started seeing, and this was kind of unbelievable to me. We were putting people with like really bad sleep apnea on ventilators and they were leaving the ICU with tracheostomies. Whoa. Yeah. And so I just remember, you know, and it, it, took, it took me a while to figure this out. Right. So there's a guy I so vividly remember. He was in the ICU for weeks and he wound up getting trached and I would see him out on the medical ward and he was probably like 35 or 40. And I just pulled up a chair one day and I sat down with him and I'm like, so what's the deal? Like, really? You wound up in the ICU for like weeks because you have sleep apnea? And he's like, oh, I just couldn't do the mask. And it just was such an epiphany for me that we need to do better by our patients, right? Like we can't just let them try a mask or two and then be like, oh, patient declined treatment and kind of write them off. We really need to treat this early because, I mean, you can't trach a 35-year-old for sleep apnea. That's untreated. I mean, it was horrible sleep apnea and he had bad heart failure from it and so on and so forth. But I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys, we need to be better at this. I always um, liken the mask because I have very, very mild sleep apnea and and the mask was an option, but it wasn't something that I necessarily needed. You know, it might it might take me from uh, a 9.5 to a 10 out of 10 on, on a, you know, a, a, some sort of sleep scale. So it wasn't something that I absolutely needed to do. And it's good because I liken some of the masks to being the reason that Darth Vader is so cranky because, I mean, no wonder he's upset. He's got this mask stuck to his face all the time. I'd be pissed off most of the time too. So that's so funny. I actually, I describe it as an air compressor strapped to your head, you know, like <laughs> yes. when I'm, when I'm yes. trying to tell my, because I feel guilty, right? Like they come in, they're like, I'm really sorry. I just, I couldn't 
couldn't do it. And I'm like, I get it. I mean, basically, here you go, sir. Wrap this thing around your head and see you later. It's only slightly less unusual than your first night in a in a sleep lab. I mean, here, strap 21 electrodes to your head, wear this belt, wear this thing on your arm, wear these things around your ankles, have a nice sleep. What? And there's a guy going to be watching you on a camera, by the way. Yeah. Spooky. I know. Right. (laughs) And so that's what, and that's exactly it. And there's like, and then on top of that, you've got this almost like performance anxiety, right? You've waited for however long to get into the lab. It's costing like $2,000 and you're like, okay, I have to sleep. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I can't sleep. And why is this guy looking at me? And these wires are weird. And what does that smell, right? And 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 what is that stuff he put in my hair? Yes. And how am I going to get that out? I mean, I've got long hair. That's that's like a significant concern for me. (laughs) So, and so, no, I get it. And so part of it, you know, when we talk to our patients before testing, we're like, we get that it's not a normal night for you. The stuff like if you have five things in your hair versus 10, like, does it really matter? right? Like you're, you're getting wired up and we get that it is weird. And this is the data that we're hoping to achieve. And we get, you're not going to sleep like you normally would at home, but let's just see if we can get usable data from this. And I think it kind of lets them diffuse a little bit because they're like, oh, okay. And like, everybody thinks it's weird. Like we had a, we had a radio, funny radio personality in our lab who would, um, post pictures on Twitter of him in the lab with all the stuff in his hair. And this is probably 10 years ago. So yeah, for sure. It's weird. Yeah. And, and the idea that you're going to get a normal night's sleep. I mean, one of the things, and, and people who listen to the show all the time have heard Mark Boulis from Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto on the show talking about a website that they put together that is, uh, if, if you want to look it up, it's psgnorms.com, where they, it was uh, what, the, what the science nerds like to call a meta-analysis of a whole pile of sleep studies that had been done. And then they figured out, okay, if your gender is this and your age range is this, and you can click, you know, options for both of those things, uh, then this is roughly what you should expect to get. This is normal for a person on their first night in a sleep lab. And if you click this button over here, it'll tell you what's normal for your second night in a sleep lab. And it's, it's fascinating to look at. Um, but at the same time for me, it was concerning because the first night I spent in a sleep lab, I found out that I was spending uh, 1% in N3 or deep sleep. When normal PSG results from your first night in a sleep lab put, should put my someone my age uh, somewhere around eh, 18 to 20%. Uh, and and that's a less than ideal circumstance. And there I am getting, you know, one twentieth of the sleep that you're supposed to get if you want to have things like your glymphatic system kick in and flush out all the toxins in your brain and all those sorts of things. So this has become a kind of an interesting project for me as I try to talk to more and more people like you and and get a, a better understanding of why everything was so horribly broken. And one of the things I want to pick your brain about you just came off of a stint as the chair of the Consumer and Clinical Technology Committee for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And and so you were this person that, if, if I'm understanding the gig correctly, were kind of on the forefront of the the wearables and things like that that are out there for people like me who are trying to get better sleep data, but also are trying to avoid going down the road of orthosomnia. Am I right? 
Oh my gosh, you've just thrown out so many words that make me so happy. Starting with <laughs> lymphatic and orthosomnia and oh my gosh, I'm so happy right now. Oh, so good. you're right. So so it's it, it, it's a group of volunteer physicians and we would meet once a month and, and we met for three years. In fact, we just had our last um, committee meeting this week and then I sort of hand the reins over to the next team. Um, and it was kind of sad. This was such a great group. And so we really really dug into this. We evaluated all sorts of sleep technologies and we tried to do apps and gadgets and websites and, you know, the thing that you wear in your head and the, the thing under your bed and, and really kind of dissect what it is that they do. And so part of it is weighing out, so what does the manufacturer say that they do? And then us looking at the sensors um, and saying, well, this is what we think it actually does. And so it's been really, really interesting. Um, and we've, <laughs> of course, we've learned a lot because we, we definitely took more than our share of left turns in this. But um, I, I can see how easy it is to uh, be swayed. So when you look at a device and it says, this is FDA cleared, you're like, oh, okay, this is super robust. But when you break it down, it may just be one component that's FDA cleared, like oximetry but they're utilizing it to say, hey, we're going to use this for, to screen for sleep apnea, that hasn't been validated. And so it's really kind of nuanced. And so then we really have to take it back and say, okay, hang on, we can believe the oximetry data, but maybe not the other stuff, right? And so it's been, um, it's been challenging because, right, this is a super competitive industry and their algorithms are proprietary and it's sort of this whole black box thing that we think this is what's happening in there, but, you know, this is kind of what we think we do with the data, uh, but please grain of salt because we, there's no transparency or very little transparency. Okay, so... I'll tell you a quick story. I was in, it might have been the insomnia subreddit or the sleep subreddit or something like that, where a guy was uh, claiming that he had stumbled upon the holy grail, this will fix your sleep. And according to him, it was forget about bed, sleep on the floor. So I, my, my eyes perked up a bit at that and I said, um... What are you what are you basing this on? Just so I know uh, that you this claim that your sleep improved exponentially when you went to sleep on the floor. He says, well, I have this sleep app that's on my phone. Um, and normally what I was doing when I was in the bed is I would put it on the corner of the mattress and it would uh, it would read my sleep data and the stages of my sleep and this and that and the other. And he said, just as an experiment one night, I decided to sleep on the floor and the the phone app says I didn't toss and turn. I didn't have like I, I had the best sleep of my life and it was because I was sleeping on the floor. That's got to be the answer. And I said, OK, do you think there's a possibility that the thing that rests on your mattress that I guess judges your sleep by how much you're moving around? Do you think maybe your floor in your house moves around a little bit less than your mattress That's crickets hilarious. because I had taken this he had stumbled upon the holy grail and I shot it down because he forgot that basically his app that he was depending on right out of the gate was never going to give him anything even semi-accurate well isn't that funny and then and the question I always like to ask my patients is you know how do you feel in the morning 
based on how you feel, not how Fitbit or whoever says that you felt. And there's definitely a disconnect, right? Like if you pick it up and you're like, oh my gosh, I had 20 awakenings and I, and I didn't have any deep sleep and oh my gosh, I'm going to, you know, this is horrible. And then you feel horrible. But if you wake up and you're like, "Eh, I feel pretty good. And then you look at it, you're like, oh, so maybe this isn't actually very accurate and actionable. And maybe I should not pay as much attention to this. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the people over in the nutrition world or the weight loss world who will say, oh, I, I, uh, I want to lose 20 pounds. Um, okay. Well, I mean, I can, I can go grab a chainsaw and we can take care of the 20 pounds right now. I mean, what do you, what do you want to lose 20 pounds of? Well, I want to lose 20 pounds of fat. So how do I lose 20 pounds of fat? Well, there's, okay. So there's a specific way you have to go about that. And why do you want to lose 20 pounds of fat? So my clothes will fit better. Okay. So why don't we instead start with how do your clothes fit? What are you, what are you in? You're, oh, you're a size 14 and you want to be what? A size 12? Okay. So let's worry about that instead of uh, focusing on an artificial number that we don't really know. And let's focus on how do your clothes fit uh, and how do you feel? And, and you open that door for people and they're like, oh. <laughs> well, and isn't that funny? Because I really do um, liken what we've done with sleep to what we've done with weight reduction forever, right? Like everybody wants to have this magic pill and it makes you skinny, right? Like you get the treadmill and that sucker doesn't make you skinny unless you're actually on it. And, and so by the same token, we're willing to fork over like 200 bucks on a sleep tracker, but we're not willing to put down our phones before we go to bed, right? We're not willing to cut out the caffeine and we're not willing to get up and move. And so it's really funny that people will invest all this money in things to make their sleep better, but they'll completely ignore the free advice, you know, just like yeah. weight loss, right? Eat better, move more. Right. Well, and, and, but that opens up a whole other door, right? And you talk about, um, you know, someone who's 35 being traked and all these sorts of different things. Um, so many people that have been guests on this show, uh, most recently, Julie Flygar, um, you know, who, who wrote a spectacular book about narcolepsy. She talked about the idea that we just need um, general practitioners to recognize that there are sleep doctors available because you go to most uh, GPs and complain to them about your weight and they'll say, eat less, exercise more. Right. Um, and you'll go to a lot of GPs and you'll say, I'm having trouble sleeping. And they'll tell you, and they'll say, we'll take some melatonin and everything will be fine. And, and there's this whole other universe that gets unlocked uh, if you are lucky enough to have a doctor that will say, no, no, you need to go to a sleep lab. That's what you need to do. Isn't it amazing? She is kind of amazing. I follow her from afar. I, I you know, I just think she, her story is amazing. She's one of those people that at some point in life I really want to meet. You know, she articulates things so well and, and gives this perspective that really we haven't necessarily seen before. Right. And so she will um, I thought she did a really good job when the FDA had this group of people who had narcolepsy and they're like, hey, what do you want out of these drugs? And of course, everyone's like, yep, I want to feel more awake. But then this idea of mental fog and mental clarity, I thought that was really enlightening because that is something that people complain about. And we don't really have great medications or treatments for it. And so you're right. I mean, how many people with narcolepsy get diagnosed with something else? instead of narcolepsy, right? 
Well, and then there's the whole stigma around narcolepsy to begin with um, that until it's diagnosed, people are just like, well, have another coffee. You'll be fine. Uh, or even you? after it's diagnosed. That is such a challenge because they're like, just get, get more sleep. Yeah. Right? Just go to bed. Yeah. Which is <laughs> like, like going to a depressed person and saying, come on, cheer up. Oh what? my gosh. Isn't that infuriating? <laughs> Just cheer up. Oh, well, duh. I wish I had thought of that. Brilliant. So, <laughs> as, as we continue these parallels between uh, the nutrition world and the sleep world, here's a comparison that I've made before um, that the only, and, and we'll t let's go back to the conversation about body fat for a second. The only 100% accurate test to quantify your percentage of body fat is a procedure called an autopsy. And I don't <laughs> think that most clinicians would recommend that for a casual weight loss enthusiast. Um, and so as you get further and further away from the accuracy of an autopsy, then there's more and more of that stuff out there, whether it's, you know, getting yourself dunked in the tank of water and, and seeing how much fat floats and whether you do the thing with the calipers where they pinch your fat and, and the various sites around your body and all these different things that they can do or the scale that you step on that tells you what your body scale, fat is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so all these different things and, and all the, the central question comes back to why do you need such granularly accurate data? Why do you care if it's 22.1% versus 22.2%? Why do you need that level of accuracy? And I think it's the same in the sleep world, right? I mean, I think the central thing is, okay, if you've got uh, a sleep app that sits beside your pillow, that's great. If you're using your Fitbit, that's great. But whatever the numbers that come back from whatever your devices are, regardless of their level of accuracy, if you've got a concern about your sleep because you're waking up feeling like garbage every day, talk to your doctor and get a reference to a sleep clinic, no? I agree. I agree. And, and that's just where the whole subjective part comes into it, right? Because it doesn't matter if you have perfect sleep, according to your tracker. If you don't feel rested, there's an issue. Right. That's the metric that we need to focus on, not the number of breath holding spells you have on your CPAP and not all this other stuff. It's how do you feel and does it make sense based on what we're seeing or do we need to look for something else in there? Interesting. And, and, and yeah, and, and you're right. The advice is out there and it's free. And instead, so many people are content to uh, talk to Dr. Reddit or talk to Dr. Google and talk to, uh, you know, Mr. Bojangles 732 on Reddit who says, oh, what you got to get is this special strain of marijuana and then you, you smoke a bowl about an hour and a half before you go to bed. You'll sleep like a baby. Works for me and it's got to work for everybody. Well... No. You, you know what I do love though? Sometimes it's that random conversation in the grocery store. Like somebody will be at the checkout, you know, pre-COVID, right? And they're, for some reason, they're complaining about their CPAP and some random person will say, just stick with it. You'll be fine. You know, <laughs> and that I've had so, cause I've, you know, I have patients that evangelize about like CPAP and sleep and all of these things. And sometimes it's that random conversation in the grocery store that makes somebody decide that, oh, well, maybe it doesn't suck so much. And, oh, there's somebody that understands and they're giving me hope because I think they, there's, some, there's sort of this assumption that if you're in a sleep clinic, they're trying to sell you something, right? Like we want you to wear a CPAP because we make a million dollars off of each one, right. you know, and the reality is I don't sell CPAP. 
Right. Like, I don't care how we treat your sleep apnea as long as we treat it, right? If you want to do weight loss or a dental device or a nasal EPAP device that you put, you know, in your nose, whatever. I don't care. We're good <laughs> as long as we treat it. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm going to throw a sentence out uh, and keep in mind that um, the, 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 among the key words in the sentence that I'm going to throw out are pre-COVID. And I like the way you said that, pre-COVID. That's a word I'm going to, that's a term I'm going to use going forward. Um so I'm going to say this and tell me if you think I'm crazy. Um, Pre-COVID, I think a lot of people were starting to latch onto the idea that sleep might be getting attention as the next big global health crisis. And I'll underline pre-COVID. Am I close? I think you are. CDC put something out a year or two ago calling it this sort of epidemic or whatever terminology they use, but they they put it right there on their CDC website and they see this as as a problem, right? So it's more than just school start times, although that's part of it. It's this idea that we are chronically sleep deprived. So a friend of mine is doing research on this post-COVID and, and she's asking people to put in like, when you go to bed, when are you waking up, how much sleep are you getting? And what she's seeing is that people are sleeping in and getting more sleep. I, I was listening to something, uh, it might've been on your podcast, I don't even remember now, but they talked about how viewership for TV between yeah. 6 and 8 a.m. decreased. Yeah. yeah, Michael Grandner and I talked about that yeah. a few episodes ago where early morning television watching has plummeted, but late night TV viewing, like between 11 at night and two in the morning is through the roof. And so if you want to use that as one example, then, I mean, by that metric, it would suggest, yeah, people are sleeping in and staying up late. Well, and I think it's so funny because, you know, forever, I have always kind of been um, like a nine hour sleeper. And I've always had this sort of delayed sleep phase tendency where I do kind of like to stay up and I would love to sleep in. And a friend of mine um, who is a sleep doc uh, in Atlanta, we both joke how we have this delayed sleep phase syndrome. So when we travel to sleep conferences, like in Seattle, we are super excited. But when we go to like Tampa, we're both like, oh my gosh, it's so early. <laughs> and of course, I've got a friend of mine who is a complete morning person and he jokes that he has ADHD. So he would have conferences start at like seven. And before, so then my other friend and I are bleary eyed and we're getting there and, we, you know, we're we're trying to get everything ready for this conference to go off really smoothly. And he bounces in. He's already had a workout. He's already had a shower. <laughs> he's just like ready to, to tackle the day. And my other friend and I just kind of look at each other. We're like, Oh man, I'm so jealous. I wish I could do that. Right, right. Um, yeah, I oh boy, I, I look at those people. I'm the same way with naps. I look at people who can bust out a. I'm just going to take a half hour nap. Really, I hate you with the fire of a thousand suns that you can take a half because for me it takes me an hour. Here, I'll look. I'm going to actually, as we sit here, I'm going to punch up the info from my Fitbit from last night, and this will give you an idea of the hill that I am trying to climb. So last night I was in bed, I want to say by nine o'clock, maybe nine thirty, and it was one of those tossy turny nights. Even though my uh, handy dandy bottle of uh, Mirapex for the restless leg and the periodic limb movement um, was failing me. It was around midnight that I got up and had 
like among the tiniest bowls imaginable of Cheerios just because I didn't want the stomach grumbling to be the thing that was going to keep me awake next. And so my Fitbit tells me that even though I went to bed at about 9, 9.30, it was 2 o'clock in the morning before I actually fell asleep. So combine that with these people who say, I'm going to take a half an hour nap. It takes me an hour and something sometimes just to fall asleep, much less the idea of having a half an hour nap. That's not even on the radar for me. Uh, and, and so it's this, this, you know, figuring out what the next step is, even just to get a normal night's sleep, never mind be, become a person who, if I decide I need a nap, I can take one. Are you a napper? I'm not. I'm not. And it sounds like you have a little sleep envy. I have a lot of sleep envy. <laughs> it's among the issues I have, Seema. So many issues. Well, and it's so funny because I think a lot of people that we see in, cl- in clinic, um, I think that they do have a lot of sleep envy just because their bed partner falls asleep really quickly. And then they're like, oh my gosh, why can't I do that? You know, and part of it is expectations, right? Like if you fall asleep in two minutes, that probably means that you're chronically sleep deprived and that's not normal. I mean, we like it, right? Because we are super, we want to be efficient and we don't want to waste all this time awake when we could be asleep. But realistically, it should probably be like 15 minutes or 20 minutes to fall asleep. And so then you've got patients when they fall asleep in 15, 20 minutes because they're comparing themselves to their partner that like is like asleep before their head hits the pillow. They're like, I need Ambien. I'm not sleeping well. (laughs) And then you go down that whole road, right? Well, and then you kind of have to reframe, right? Like, what are you expecting? Like, what is your expectation? Because, you know, sleep is, I think it's this great equalizer, right? Like, it doesn't matter who you are, if you're well if you're not, you know, it, it doesn't matter. We all need to sleep. Well, if you go back to the second episode of this show, um, I was lucky enough to sit down with Dr. Adrian Owen. And um, at the time, they had recently released um, uh, this meta-analysis and this work that they had done uh, with, with people who would do cognition tests and also report on their sleep. And what they discovered was that uh, people who sleep, I believe it was less than, you know, normally get less than six hours of sleep a night, uh, were functioning from a cognitive perspective, the same level as someone who is nine to 10 years older than they are. But they also surprisingly found that that was similarly true of people who were getting more than 10 hours of sleep every night. So there's this sweet spot for everyone where cognition is concerned. And he and I sort of painted this picture of this hard charging type A personality, you know, top of the world, uh, you know, wins all the sales awards, blah, 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 blah. blah. Uh, and he's getting by on six hours a night. And, and we talked about this idea that he might have an entirely different awesome level of performance that he doesn't even realize he's got available to him because he doesn't feel sleepy. And all he's got to do is grab maybe an extra hour of decent quality sleep and he unlocks this door to a whole other level of achievement. Isn't that so true? I've said that to a few, and you're right, they're the sort of executives that sleep four or five hours and they're super productive and, you know, they're in clinic because they had like their executive physical at Mayo and they were worried about sleep apnea or something like that. And they're super dismissive, right? They're like, I'm fine. And then when you mention to them, imagine like this is your level of productivity now, imagine unleashing this additional, you know, bonus level 
of what you could accomplish. And that kind of makes them take pause. And they're like, huh. Right. They always thought that they were performing at the at the top of their game. And maybe there's more to it. Maybe there's more potential. And then they're like, oh, okay, maybe I'll pay attention to this. Well, and when we use the phrase game, it's interesting, too, because the and and I want to get into your new podcast. um, But the first guest on your first episode of your podcast was Dr. Chris Winter, who does a lot of work with professional athletes um, and just, you know, garden variety athletes. Um, And it's been interesting where in the last year or two, you've got all these superstars in football and baseball and all these other sports that are walking around going, no, the, the thing that puts me at my peak um, is that I get, I get the proper amount of rest. Isn't it fantastic? I'm actually super, super excited about people paying attention to their sleep. You know, it feels like forever we've been screaming into this void. <laughs> now all of a sudden, you know, people are listening and, and I'm completely guilty of it myself. So when I was an intern, I was, um, you know, you work these crazy hours and I remember driving home and I fell asleep at a stop sign. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so the guy behind me had to, you know, beep his horn to get me going. And my immediate thought was, oh, I'm such a good little intern. Look at me. I worked so hard. I fell asleep at, at a stop sign. Yeah. And um, it would it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that that's not so good. right bad move bad move and so but it's so ingrained in our culture and so i i see this almost cultural shift in acceptance of where now people are on instagram talking about like this is my sleep mask and i'm going to bed early and i'm like oh this is wonderful i love that people are talking about their sleep and like you said before, and I'll invoke it again here, the, the advice is free, right? There's, there's 500,000 articles every week written about basically it's a, it's a rehashing of sleep hygiene. You <laughs> exactly, know, give or take, right? <laughs> right, and, and they're all out there. And I mean, decorating websites are, are publishing stories about sleep hygiene. You know, decorate your bedroom this way. Oh, and by the way, don't put a TV in the bedroom, blah, blah, all this stuff that's designed to get people to get their sleep game in order. But apparently- we're just resistant to that whole idea. And Michael made an extra, uh, Michael Grandner made an excellent point a couple of episodes ago that so much of what is broken about people's sleep is stuff that we have chosen to put there, whether it's our devices, whether it's watching the latest rundown of the numbers about COVID-19 on the 11 o'clock news and then turning it off and going to bed and just lying there fretting about the numbers for half an hour. So much of it is just stuff that we have consciously chosen to introduce into our sleep lives. And yet we're so resistant to that idea that somehow this is a consequence of the action I've taken. And the answer has got to be something outside of that, outside of the choices I'm making, right? There's got to be something wrong with my sleep. So one of the choices that people can make is to uh, listen to your brand new show. Talk to me about uh, talking sleep, which I, by the way, I, I love... I love the title. I was almost, uh, I was interested when I looked at the logo because I was convinced that the words in your were going to be in there in tiny type somewhere. So it was talking in your sleep, but uh, <laughs> talking sleep is brand new. Uh, talk to me about what it's, what it's for, because I get a sense that you and I, while we're batting around a lot of the same subjects, we're talking to two very different groups of people. 
So you're right. I mean, this has been kind of exciting. This is an AASM podcast. So meaning they, they do all the heavy lifting. <laughs> and so um, we are hoping uh, to just talk about different facets of sleep. So not just the things within the AASM orbit, right? Because I think we see a lot of that already, but really pulling in people from, um, you know, like research and, and industry and really having this robust conversation about sleep. Uh, and you're right, we are sort of geared toward sleep physicians and clinicians and that sort of thing. But I feel like a lot of the messaging um, is, is digestible. And so I'm really hoping that this will um, maybe spill into not just clinicians listening to it. I, I really hope it'll help us uh, engage in a great conversation about sleep. Yeah, um, because the answers are, I mean, unless it is a serious medical condition, um, but even those are treatable. And and you talk about finding better ways than just giving up on somebody wearing a mask after a couple of different tries. Um, The answers, one would think, are pretty easy to come by. Um, and, and I think the more people are talking about it, this was uh, the first thing, uh, because someone pointed out your podcast to me the day it launched and they said, well, now you're in trouble because you were going to start, you were having your little podcast cranking along. And then all of a sudden the American Academy of Sleep Medicine starts a podcast. I guess you might as well shut yours down. And I went, no, 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 No. because the more people that are talking about this, the better for starters. Um, and, and, um, you're right. I mean, I think at, at first blush, um, I felt like yours really is finding a home among the clinicians. But you're right. There is so much room for your show in particular to sort of also appeal to the masses. Um, I, I, I love the idea that there are just plain more people talking about it. And I think the more of us get to – it's like somebody somewhere will find a way to write the article about sleep hygiene that will – appeal to the people that haven't been reached yet. I don't know who that person's going to be, but, you know, I mean, so there's probably going to be an article about sleep hygiene in Construction Worker Monthly or Field and Stream or something like that that's going to reach these audiences that otherwise people like you and I are never going to have a chance of talking to simply by virtue of finding a way to appeal to those audiences, you know? Yeah, and I think that's exactly it. I think you kind of have to meet people where they are. So, you know, like uh, 100 years ago when I did uh, pulmonary, um, you could never really talk to people about quitting smoking with the, you're going to get lung cancer and die. You would kind of have to maybe choose something that you thought was personally important to them. So I just remember this one, this one woman, you know, we talked about how the smoke causes wrinkles around your lips sure. and she just gave me this look of like her eyes got wide. She's like, does it really? I'm like, it kind of does. And, it, and it's really bad for your skin. And she's like, oh my gosh, I need to quit. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Like she didn't care, right, about the COPD and the lung cancer and all of that. She's like, oh, but my skin. <laughs> and it's legitimate, <laughs> right? Like I think it was Estee Lauder. I can't remember which company, but one of these companies a few years ago did a study on sleep and skin. And they had these experts look at skin and they had some sort of device that measured skin tone and wrinkle depth. And what they found at the conclusion of the study is if you slept better, you appeared more youthful. Wow. Very powerful, right? Yep. And, and I mean, 
look, vanity to a certain degree is part of everybody's experience. And if that's what it's going to take to get you to pay attention to your sleep, then yay. Like, I, thanks I for agree. finding it. I agree. Just like the weight loss data and all of that. I mean, what else can you do where you literally just lay there, right? <laughs> and you feel so much better afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so uh, uh, for your show, talk to me about how it's going to work because episode one is out. It's you and Chris Winter. Um, what's it, When's episode two happen? How often are the episodes and, and where do we find them and all of that good stuff? Well, it's so funny that you ask. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> so we have four that are currently um, being, um, I suppose, they're in production. Maybe everything's been recorded and then they will they will launch those. And a lot of those were um, our education. So the ASM has a lot of committees and these committees are comprised of sleep physicians that volunteer their time. And so one of these committees was an educational committee and they started producing these interviews with these um, people in sleep. Uh, and so we're going to highlight those in the next four episodes. And then we'll really start into other interviews with people outside of the ASM, for example, uh, or really, I'm sure we'll have a lot more on COVID because <laughs> this is really, I mean, it has um, devastated a lot of medical practices, you know, inside and outside of the sleep world. Sure. And sure. so, right, we're all having to kind of, you know, look at our practices with a critical eye and pay attention to what we're doing and what we want to do. Like, what does our future look like, right? And so I think there's going to be a lot of conversation about that. A lot of it is, you know, like I, I told you before that I am really excited to learn from you, right? Because Which is we, a terrifying thought. <laughs> no, I mean, we are trying to figure it out. Right. Like, what is it that people are interested in? What do they want to listen to? You know, how how should we do it? Right. Like how many episodes should we have? There's a sweet spot right between overwhelming people and creating so much content that no one's going to listen to it and then not having enough where people lose interest. The idea that I might be the template for anything is horrifying to anyone. Um, listen, I this ah, there's so I, I feel like you and I could probably sit here and bat around sleep for for another hour. Um, and and I feel like it's it's certainly um, a, a thing that we should look at uh, reconvening, you know, down the road. Because as you say, if you've got episodes in the can right now, as they say, um, that are just waiting to be released, and then as you continue to go forward and sort of find your footing and all those sorts of things, I mean, I'll be eagerly watching from the sidelines, but I, I feel like when that time comes, um, I, w I would love to get you back on and, and talk more about all of this stuff because there are so many places to go and so many different aspects of this that we can cover. And I'm excited to hear somebody else talking about it too. Oh, I'm excited. And then of course, when we actually kind of get things up and rolling, we'll have to have you, you know, on and, and share your expertise and your viewpoints. Because you want to see what, what the low end of the scale is like in terms of listenership. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, not yeah. at all. Like, here's, here's the, okay, what's the worst case scenario? How few people are going to listen to this? Let's get Headley on. How about that? Well, no, uh, I'm waiting for you to shoot me a text and be like, oh, yeah, bad move. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> 
no, I mean that first episode, and and you knocked it out of the park with Chris Winter as your as your first guest too, because um, I, I could sit and listen to Chris Winter uh, read the side of a bottle of Ambien and and be riveted for twenty five minutes. Uh, he's just he's he's spectacular and Isn't so he a terrific. Great? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm eager to get him on this show, but very wisely uh, he's been hesitant to check his direct messages on Twitter. So I think that's a credit to Chris. Um, but uh, one of these days, whether he knows it or not, he and I will be friends and he will be here at some point. Um, oh, I, I totally I, got him on Twitter. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, and he's, he's well <laughs> worth the follow too. Yep. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's a fascinating guy and, uh, and, and does a lot of work with a lot of people like we talked about before who are recognizing the importance of sleep. And, and it's to a whole population that probably hasn't taken sleep seriously enough where, oh, really, Tom Glavin, the Cy Young Award-winning Hall of Fame pitcher, uh, is, a, is a big sleep advocate? Wow, maybe I should be working on sleep because I love Tom Glavin, you know, those kind of people. Um, I, I think the fact that he does work with so many of those kinds of people might be the thing that helps get that conversation started with a population that might not pay attention otherwise. But again, and it's the same thing about your show, you know, and, and the more people that are talking about it, the better for everybody because somebody will find that way of wording something that will resonate with a crowd that hasn't heard it yet. Right. And then we all win, don't we? When people yeah, take we better care of their sleep. I appreciate the time, uh, and we'll do this again if you're willing. I, uh, I I can't thank you enough for making room for this. No, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. It was lovely. Um, and where did just so I everybody knows where do we go and find your podcast? Other than hey, it's available in your podcast app. Um, <laughs> you know, because going hitting a search in your podcast app is normally fraught with danger because you never know what you're going to get back. We actually have a link on the AASM website. It's aasm.org. Uh, and an email was sent out to AASM members. So if you're not a member, I would encourage you to go to the website and click on the link, uh, or you can search for it in the uh, Apple Podcast Store. There you go. And it's called Talking Sleep. Uh, and Seema, you're, you did a great job on the first episode. I can't wait to hear what's coming. I, I, you said there's four uh, in the can. I'm, I'm excited to hear those come out and, and excited to hear where it goes. Well, thank you. Now I've learned a new term too in the can. I'll have to, I'll have to implement that immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and just for you, I'm going to get ready to do the outro. So um, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks so much. There you go, Dr. Seema Kosla on the Snooze Button Podcast. Uh, you can find everything about her new show, Talking Sleep, at aasm.org. There's a link right there that will take you to her podcast called Talking Sleep. I'm excited to hear uh, what the rest of the episodes bring. A reminder of what we said at the very beginning of the show, Julie Flygar's book, Up for Grabs. you got to get your entry in before May the 31st. Details on how to do that at thesnoozebutton.com. You click the contests link and Bob's your uncle while you're there, you can also uh, leave us your feedback on the show. You can click a link that'll take you somewhere where you can rate and review the show. You can get to our social media profiles. You can even donate if you want to the show to help keep it commercial free. Um, Also, if you're liking the content, but you're short for time, there's a nine minute highlight version basically of every episode with a different podcast called the snooze button express. And you can also get to that from our homepage at the snoozebutton.com. till we get together next week. My name's Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep. Would you? 